Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. Uh, many of you have already seen in your, in your notes uh, in the bulletin there, so go ahead and pull those out as well. Uh, we are excited to be finishing up uh, a message we began. Uh, this is the third week. Uh, it really wasn't supposed to be multiple weeks, uh, but that's how the Lord led us, and so I'm excited to be there this morning with you as we continue to talk about the assurance of our salvation, the assurance the divine guarantee that we have in Christ. Uh, if you've enjoyed this morning so far, say amen. amen. Uh, we are excited uh, to continue to worship, and I love that we can actually worship the Father, worship God by honoring those that he's placed in our lives. Uh, sometimes we think Mother's Day and, and church, those should be two separate things, Father's Day and church, two separate things, those kind of things. Uh, but I truly believe when we honor those that God has placed in our lives, God is honored in that. And when we honor God for our children or our spouse, um, and then I mentioned Father's Day is coming up soon here next month, so just throwing that out there, you know, for anyone that's thinking about that. Um, I do think it's funny, though, that most Mother's Days, um, the husbands or, or whatnot will cook out, will grill out, right? That's usually the normal thing. I mean, sometimes you go out to eat at a nice restaurant, uh, but a lot of times the husbands will just cook out because, you know what, honey, I'll take care of lunch today. I'll just do that for you. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll turn a grill on and I'll put hot dogs and burgers on there. By the way, can you make the burgers up for me, right? That's how that goes. Just make them in the patties. You don't got to cook them, honey. No, no, no. I can cook them. Not rocket science, right? Like we're not magicians in the grill, okay? Some men think they're magicians on the grill because they can use seasoned salt. Like, no, I, it's my special seasoning. What is it? It's just seasoned salt. Look, I smeared barbecue sauce on it. It's wonderful. But it's funny, though. Then Father's Day comes around. Do you know what most men eat on Father's Day? Food they cooked on the grill, Right? So you might think, well, I know what you're going to have for Father's Day. It will not be Chinese, just so you know. That's not, I usually do actually have on the grill. But, but no, we are so excited to celebrate moms today. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm more excited than that to really look at what God has for us today. Because there is nothing greater in this life than the divine guarantee. You have nothing to fear in your salvation. Because Jesus, as Dave just sang about, because Jesus did all that he did, yes, even before his very mother, he did all of that so that we could have salvation, and he didn't do that for temporary salvation. He didn't do that for momentary salvation. He did that for eternal life. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, I know I told you to go to Romans 5. We'll get there in, in just a moment. I want to review uh, where we've been the last two weeks. You, in your notes, you have all the fill-ins uh, for the last couple of weeks. And so I'm just going to read Philippians 1.6, uh, which should be in your notes as well. And then we're going to go right into Romans 5, read a few verses so we can get through the rest of the new stuff today. Um, I was a little worried this morning. I leaned over to my wife and I said, you know, I got three points. And Man, I really hope we can get this, you know, the rest of this message in. I really feel like God wants us to get this done today, and, and I'm excited to do it. And I mentioned it to her last week, too. I said, you know, I don't know how far we're going to get, but I'm just going to go as far as the Lord will allow. And as only she can, you know, God has put people in our lives to encourage us. Amen? To give us grace. Why are you laughing? I have not said anything funny. Like, are you anticipating a punchline here? I don't know what's going on. So she's... 
Oh, she's hiding her face. Oh, okay. So, so she leans over and she says, well, just cut out the fluff. My first thought was, what's the fluff? Like, what? I don't even know what that means. And you might be thinking, I can't believe you'd embarrass her this way. So this, when I leaned over this morning and I said something, she kind of laughed and I said, well, like you said last week, cut out the fluff, right? And she said, yeah. She said, I'm actually kind of surprised you didn't say anything about that last week in the morning. So I had to now get, you know, I got I to gotta support her. She expected it. I got to fulfill those expectations. But I want to go to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, and let's read this, uh, or I'm going to read it as you listen, but let's, let's listen to the Word of God this morning, um, because you know what's amazing is, it, they come alive. Did you catch what, what in Ezekiel brought the bones to life? It wasn't the prophet. It wasn't the prophet that brought the bones to life. It said, prophesy over them the word of God. Do you know what brings us to life? It's not the preacher. It's not the presentation. It's not the illustration. It's not the environment or the setting. It's not the charisma of the speaker. It is when the word of God is given and received that an individual is aware of their sin, equally aware of the need for repentance, and equally aware of the need or the availability of grace. And it's in receiving those things that we are given new life. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it is the word of God that brings us to life. It is not the speaker or the setting or the, 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 the jokes. It's, not, it's the word of God that brings someone to new life. And so I want to look at this this morning in Philippians 1.6 because I believe the word of God also reminds us not that the word of God brings us to life, but the word of, the word of God keeps us in that eternal life. Paul says here to the church at Philippi that we can be confident in a truth. What is that truth? And I am certain that God, Paul says, who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you I'm so thankful that when I cried out to Christ at 16 years old at Camp Chautauqua in Miamisburg, Ohio, at the altar up front, and just said, God, I don't know what I need to do other than I can just cry out to you. I just need you. I'm sorry for my sin. I know that I've not lived in a way that honors you, and I pray that you would save me, and God, my life is yours. I don't want my life to be mine anymore. And see, in that very moment, he saved me. And he didn't just save me, he began a work in me. And I'm so thankful that we can have a confident truth that what? That what God starts, God will finish. Amen? What God starts, God will finish. It is his work. It is he who holds onto us because he will always finish what he starts. Just a quick review. Six truths we began talking about two weeks ago. Six truths that provides the divine guarantee. Romans chapter 5, and we'll start reading in verse 1. Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Still, to me, one of the most powerful verses, if not in the book of Romans, but maybe even in the New Testament. Therefore, being justified by faith, 
We have peace with God. We've said it before. We'll say it again. The first truth we have to understand is we have peace with God. You see, this is key in knowing that we are sealed through all of eternity. The peace we have with God is through faith. This is a present possession. I'm going to say it again. Some of us need to believe this this morning. It is a present possession in Christ. Some of us hunger for peace. We long for peace. You think more finances will bring you peace. You think more quote-unquote security will bring you peace. You think that car, you think that house, you think that promotion, you think all these things. Oh no, but if I just get to that level, then I'll have peace. Then I'll be comfortable. The truth is there's only one thing that offers you peace, true peace, lasting peace, and that's only found in the personal work of Jesus Christ. See, it is a present possession. I said it last week. I'll say it again. I know that we pray for peace. I know why we pray for peace. I get why we do that. But please understand, if you are in Christ, you have peace. It's already already there. It's a present possession. Through faith, because of Christ, you have peace with God. And you might say, well, you know what, Pastor? That's fine. I get that I have peace with God. It's peace this way that I have a hard time with. That's because you think this peace matters more than this peace. But when you allow this to rule and reign in your mind and you get in the word of God and you say, God, no, I was once an enemy bound for hell. Now I'm a saint, a child of God bound for your heaven. Listen, if I have discomfort this way because of somebody in my life not treating me the way I should or things not happening the way they should or situations aren't playing out like they should, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on my peace with you and let that be my focal point. And I'm going to pray, God, you take care of the rest of the stuff around me. I love what one author said, that basically the peace we have with God is not an emotional peace. It's an objective fact. And it's the objective fact that produces the subjective overflow of an emotional peace. It's truth, I have peace with God. That cannot change no matter what happens. So therefore, out of that truth that doesn't change is produced circumstantial peace or momentary peace in the face of trials and situations. We don't allow our emotions to dictate truth. Truth dictates to our emotions. We also not only have peace with God, look what it goes on to say there in verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, into this grace wherein ye stand. Now, I love the way the, the Apostle Paul writes. He doesn't just say you have grace. He says you're standing in grace, not retreating in grace. Sometimes we think this way, don't we? The world's so dark and bleak and everything's so horrible. I need to retreat away into church. No, 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 no. We stand in the face of opposition. We stand in the face of all that would have us to be fearful and say, I'm not fearful of you. I stand in grace. When our flesh tries to draw us away, we stand in grace through Christ. Again, as I said it a couple weeks ago, because all things, hear me now, and you've got to believe this. You've got to know this is true or else you think it's about you. All things that pertain to the blessings of salvation come through Christ. We have been granted an introduction into grace, access into grace. And that access is truly life-changing. In the Old Testament, we read of how inaccessible God was to the Jewish people. Inaccessible. He wasn't accessible as he is today. But then Christ came and all changed. The veil was torn. And now we have been given access into the grace. One author said it this way. We are engulfed in grace. 
You see the Bible, maybe some of you saw this. Uh, Matt Chandler shared this, and I, I put it through Facebook, and I hope you shared it, if, or I hope you saw it. Uh, he talked about the Word of God, that this is a book that was written over the course of 2,000 years. Forty different authors contributed to this writing. Now, think about that for a moment. 2,000 years, three different continent, continents, 40 different authors, everything from a priest to, to a servant, and everything in between, fishermen to kings. And yet, from cover to cover, it's one story. And I love what Matt Chandler said. The story's not about you. That's, you're not the point of the story. We like to think we're the point of the story. Oh, the Bible's all about us. And when the Bible doesn't fall in line with what we think it should, we get mad at the Bible. No, 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 but the Bible's supposed to be my roadmap for life. Supposed to give me all the answers I need for life. God, why is your word insufficient, not answering all my questions? Is that the purpose of the Bible? Or maybe the purpose of the Bible is somewhat greater than just a roadmap for life to go to when we just want to know, do I do this or do that? Maybe the purpose of the Bible, while yes, it will give us wisdom in our decisions, maybe the purpose of the Bible is to actually change us into the person of Jesus Christ. So we think like him, and we act like him, and we are conformed to the image of Christ. And then what will happen is we don't have to have a black and white answer for every single thing. As we're walking in Christ, he will give us his wisdom, and through the word of God we'll understand, okay, I just need to honor Christ in this. I need to follow him. You see, the story of the word of God is God's redeeming love for the lost. And again, we think, well, this is not about me. No, no, no. The star of the story, the hero of the story, the main character of the story is God. It's him, it's his love, it's his grace, it's his coming to us that redeems us. We are a part of the story, don't get me wrong, but man, he is the main attraction in the story. You see, we stand in grace because he offered grace to us. We could not stand in what was not offered. So we don't create grace in our own lives. We stand by access given to us through Christ in grace. Also, we talked about this last week, we have a hope of glory, a hope of of glory. He goes on to say this in verse 2. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have been given a promise which is eternal and a glorious future. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, we'll continue to read. We see how this is played out in our lives. It says, and not only so, but we glory. We, we look forward to, in a sense, we rejoice also and glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations work patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed. And hope makes not ashamed. I mean, sometimes we'll wonder, I know I'm saved. I want to believe I'm saved for eternity. But what about when trials come? What about when hard things happen? What about when situations arise that we don't look forward to, that we didn't ask for? What about when struggles come? What about when God doesn't do what I want God to do? What about when I pray and I pray and he doesn't answer with a yes, but he answers with a no? What do I do then? How do I find rest in that? See, the truth is, and really the key in our salvation is through those times of struggle, we see the progression of our faith, which burns even brighter as so grows our hope. I know it's difficult in this understanding of heaven, this understanding of what God is doing, but I promise you, based on the word of God, not my experience, 
but I promise you that God is good and God is loving and God is, God is trustworthy. And I don't understand all that God allows to happen, but I do understand this. God said that if those that trust in him will never be lost, no matter what happens in this world. And I know that's hard, and I know that's not the easy answer, and I know we want it black and white, and I know we want it, well, no, but, but I want this, and God should just do this because this is what makes sense to me. We have to step back and say, no, even as the psalmist would write, though he slay me, I will praise him. That doesn't I, I, I trust him as good because he says he's good, not because my situations tell me he's good. And as the, we grow in understanding that, we grow in our faith, and our faith will burn brighter and brighter. And as our faith burn bright, burns brighter, so grows our hope. And what will this hope produce? It says that our hope will not disappoint us or make us ashamed. You see what he says there? It says, and hope makes not ashamed. That phrase, makes not ashamed, is the idea of will not disappoint us will never let us down. I said it last week. I'll say it again. Anybody been let down by somebody? Somebody let you down? Raise your hand. Keep them up for a second. Look around. You've been disappointed. Okay. How many of you have let somebody else down? Disappointed them? Yeah. Okay. We've all been there. I've been there. But this from the word of God tells us that when we trust in Christ, that hope, that hope of glory will never let us down. Let's continue to look at uh, these six great truths by discovering our assurance or possession of love. Again, you have notes in your uh, bulletin there. I pray that you would uh, take note of these things, jot these down, study these things later. I encourage you to spend time in God's word this week. Assurance or possession of love is another guarantee or part of the guarantee that we have from Christ. Romans 5 and verse 5. It says here, and hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died, what does it say, for us. Man, did you ever think about that? What is, what's Paul saying here? If I brought up a man right now that was convicted of murder and rape and pedophilia and every just horrible, wicked thing, and I said, okay, he's been sentenced to die for his crimes. He's going to be electrocuted. He's been given capital punishment. He's going to die. Who'll take his place? Who's willing to give their life for this guy? I guarantee you, I guarantee you, humanly speaking, we want to say we would. We want to say we'd be like Jesus. But I'm telling you, based on conversations I've had over the years, many years with Christians about these kinds of situations, I'm telling you, we would sit arms folded and say, I ain't giving my life for that guy. He deserves what he's getting. Look what he did. Who would give their life for that guy? He's disgusting. Some of you have even said privately, not out loud because it doesn't sound very Christian, you would say, man, there's a guy that I think deserves to go to hell. Just a little bit of a reality check. Everyone in this room, including myself, deserves to go to hell. There's nobody in this room. If I brought this guy up here, you know what I could say to you honestly? I could say every one of us are equal with this guy. And yet Jesus died for that guy. 
Jesus gave his life for him. You know what Paul says? Paul says, if there was a good man brought up here, I mean, a guy that was just a perfect example of a human being, just moral and loving and caring and kind and just the greatest person you could think of, some of you, not even all of us, some of us would say, okay, I'll give my life for that guy. I can see that his life is worth something. we got to go back a little bit, though. If we're all created in the image of God, then we're all valuable. Some of us would say, I'll die for him, but I'm not dying for that guy. See, that's Paul's entire argument here. That's his whole point. Don't you understand? Verse 8 is so powerful. But God commendeth his love toward us, demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, not sort of sinners, not kind of sinners, not baby sinners, not white lie sinners, just sinners. Just wretched, apart from God, vile, disgust. The way you think of, think of the worst sin you can imagine, that if you had to hear of this happening, it would just make you so mad. Turn your stomach. It would make you almost want to be violent towards a person and just anger. That's how God the Bible says his wrath is ready to be poured out on the ungodly. His wrath looks down and says, you have sinned. You have broken my laws, and I will give you wrath that you deserve. But then Jesus came. And you know what's crazy? Jesus gave his life that whosoever may will, can come. But there'll be those who look at that and say, I don't want it. And then we are shocked when God fulfills his warnings and says, okay, you've rejected Christ. You are outside of Christ. You are in your sin. You die in your sin. Now the wrath of God is on you. And we don't understand that. But when we understand the distance from God, we should understand the power of his love for us. You see, we didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. And in fact, we deserved and earned the exact opposite of it. But yet here, the Bible says that God demonstrated his love. He showed his love for those that are in sin. In Ephesians 1, chapter 14, I was going to tell you this a minute ago, but you can go to Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians for a couple more verses. You see, God here tells us, in verse 5 of Romans, he says, And hope makes not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. You see, he explains how distant we were from God, but he says, But the love of God was offered to you. You received God's love, it says. Because it says the Holy Spirit is the one that sheds abroad in our heart the love of God. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14 and again, I want to go here because this is one of the key verses on eternal security. If you've ever doubted your salvation, you've ever doubted if you can be eternally secure, this is the verse you need to study, you need to understand in context of all of the first 14 verses in Ephesians 1. And he says here, I'm going to start in verse 13. In whom also you receive, you're trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Where did the gospel originate? The word of truth. I had to hear it. I had to trust in it. I had to receive it. And whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Amen. Uh, those of you that did not say amen, don't, maybe you're not excited about that fact. 
I'm pretty excited that I'm sealed until the day of redemption. I was sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Amen. Amen. Verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The Bible says you are a purchased possession, that you are bought with a price, that your, the love of God was extended to you, and after you trusted and received in that, you are kept by the Spirit of God unto the day of redemption, that nothing can separate you from that reality, that nothing can change that transaction. Paul says here that the love of God, back in Romans chapter 5, is shed abroad in our hearts. Another way to say this is poured out, speaks of lavish, this idea of filling love. The key is not we love him, but that he loves us this much. We read this again, Romans chapter 8. Go back to Romans, chapter, Romans 5 and then go forward a couple chapters, Romans 8. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Romans 8, 35. Again, a very popular passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are sealed in the day of redemption. The love of God is poured out in your heart. It is a filling love. It is a lavish love. And it is given to those who are in Christ. It is a guarantee. It is a hope. And it is a confident trusting that we can put in Christ. One more passage. Go back to Ephesians. I encourage you to keep your finger there in Ephesians. If you did not, you're angry right now, but if you did, you're fine. (laughs) No, I didn't put anything there. Ephesians chapter 3, and I wanted to do this this morning, and, and through the course of these messages, I want us to see that this is not Pastor John's idea. This is not a Baptist thing. This is not a denominational thing. This is a Bible thing. This is a guarantee from God's word. And I know some of us grew up in denominations or church backgrounds where we were taught that we're saved by grace, but we're kept by works. Or we're saved by grace until we sin a little too much, then we can lose it and fall from grace and all these things. And it breaks my heart to hear pastors encouraging people with a falsehood. The Bible is clear. And I said at the very first week, some of the objections and some of the passages that people will go to to say, well, isn't this talking about loss of salvation? Study it in context. It's either a false teacher. It's somebody that never knew Christ but says they know Christ. It is not a believer falling from grace because the Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. And we see ultimately where the Bible says we are eternally secure. Ephesians 3, look at verse 16. Paul, again, saying similar things to the Ephesian or the, uh, the church at Ephesus as well as the church at Rome. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that same spirit we were given at the moment of salvation, 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. There's that word again. That ye being rooted and grounded in love. Goes on here in verse 18. May be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And we have an assurance or possession of love in Christ. Now, let me just be clear here for a second. This is where some people blur this line. The Bible speaks of the love of God. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The love of God for the world brought Christ to us. Amen? Allowed us to see Christ die on that cross, be buried, and rise again. But the love of Christ in John 3.16 that brought Christ to us does not negate the holiness and the justice and the wrath of God to those that are outside of Christ. We have to understand in the Bible there's such a thing as context. In Romans chapter 5, he is speaking to believers. In Romans chapter 8, when he says nothing will separate us from the love of God, he is speaking to believers because he mentions in Christ. What does this mean? Love of God is offered generally. All of the world is offered the love of God. We call this common grace. It's offered to all. It's a common call. All can come. All can be saved. But then when we put our faith and trust in Christ, it's not that God so much loves us more because he loves equally. But he now understands, okay, now that love brought you and drew you to a relationship through Christ. And that is why I believe that when someone rejects Christ, that's why it breaks the Father's heart because he still loves them, but he has to still be the God that he says he is. And so I want us to understand this. There's the love, general love to all of the world, but then we have to receive Christ to be ushered into that fatherly love that he speaks about through relationship. Not only do we have an assurance of love, we also have the certainty of deliverance. Romans chapter 5 Look at verse 9. I must add a little too much fluff because we're getting a little long here. So let's just move on. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. <laughs> it's going to be a quiet ride home. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or it could be a very loud ride home. I don't know. We'll just see what happens. So for the audio, okay. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. It says here, Much more than, much more than, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we have been, or we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. One of the parts of the divine guarantee is not only do we have an assurance of love, but the certainty of deliverance. This verse lays out one of the most important truths in the Christian gospel. The most important truth in the Christian gospel, that we are justified by his blood. He died for us. The moment of salvation transformed us. I don't know if it's in your notes, Ephesians chapter 2. We're not going to turn there, but you can, I wanted you to just kind of remind yourself to read that later. Ephesians Chapter 2 talks about the idea that when we were saved, we were changed. We were transformed. The, the word he uses is quickened. We were made alive. You see, we, the reason we don't really we get excited about our salvation sometimes is because we don't really believe the power of the transformation it took to save us. 
But you were dead in your sins. And like Lazarus in the tomb, you could do nothing to raise yourself. You could say all you wanted to. I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. But you're really dead. It took the word of God to the person of Jesus Christ to call out and say, come forth. Then we come out of the tomb. Then we're made alive. You see, we have been saved and transformed. The truth is, once we have been changed, we can never go back to our previous state. You have been made new, the Bible says. You cannot return to your previous state. But not only do we read that we are the ones that Christ died for, we read that we have been and will be delivered from the wrath of God through Christ. Christ saved us, Christ is saving us, and Christ will save us because he took our place on the cross and his wrath, the wrath of God, was satisfied in Christ. You see, he saved you when you cried out to him. He is saving you right now. And one day, praise God, when you leave this world and you step from this shore to the next shore, he will save you. He promised you are delivered, will be delivered from the wrath of God. But what is the wrath that we are talking about? I've mentioned that word a few times. I want to go to one passage. You have a a passage in your notes. I encourage you to go to on your own. But I want to go to a passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, For notes, you can jot it down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. I want to read this, and then we'll have a little bit of understanding of what exactly we're being saved from. At least one example. Many times in Scripture it speaks of this, but this is just one example. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the uh, church at Thessalonica. And so he is similarly speaking to these same topics. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now he speaks about those who are troubled. He says, rest with us. Why can I take rest even in the midst of trouble? Because I can look forward to Christ's return. Verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Doesn't just, that should just really fire you up. And you're like, well, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, what? That doesn't sound very positive. Notice the reason we rest is because we're not going to go through that. He says you can rest because when Christ returns with his mighty angels to bring this punishment, this wrath, this destruction, you are in Christ. Therefore, you will not suffer those things. We can take rest even in the midst of chaos that those outside of Christ will be punished for their sin is a truth of Scripture. We cannot say, because I don't like it, I have to remove it. I don't like the idea that someone will spend an eternity in hell. I wish it wasn't the case. And the truth is, Scripture says, God wishes the same thing. God desires that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. But yet, God is not a God who will force his love on anyone. You know, there's those that are atheistic in their thinking. I believe it was Hawkins that said that he... If he thought for a second he would be made to go to heaven, it would be like hell to him. 
He hated God so much that the idea of being forced into heaven would be hell to him. And you might think that guy doesn't know what he's talking about, but that's why God doesn't force us because he says you are free to choose. The truth is there will be a place and there is a place called hell that those outside of Christ will be punished for their sin, not because God is angry or mean or vindictive, but because God is just and holy and sin must be paid for. I think every time we over-exaggerate and talk about hell as an extremity that, or extreme situation that just can't be real, we underestimate our sin and what brokenness looks like to God. But those of us in Christ, we can stand in rest and peace because we have a hope and a guarantee that we will not endure that. We will stand with him in victory. It is the sacrifice of Christ that is the grounds of our acceptance with God. None of the five truths we have spoken of this morning is based in our works, but in the faithfulness of Christ. In verse 9 of Romans chapter 5, we read the phrase, much more, much more. And Paul's point is that while the first four keys are good and wonderful, it is much more that we will be saved from his wrath and we are sustained because he is alive. The reason we don't fall away is because we have a living, interceding high priest that's the much more of our salvation. Finally and quickly, the last part of the guarantee is we have a joy in God. Romans chapter 5, verse 11. We have a joy in God. And not only so, Paul says, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Paul culminates with not only so. He started with simple truth, then he went to much more, and now he says, not only so. He's building this entire case. There's one thing that he says, one attitude, one disposition that should dominate the life of a believer, and that is joy. Salvation is not merely a future. It is a present joy in anticipation of that future. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let me ask you a question. If you struggle with this area of joy, what more could we want out of life? What more is there? What more can we want out of life and what more is there? This truth of eternal assurance brings us the greatest Joy. Those of us that struggle with joy in, humanly, in, in our human minds, usually it's because we think joy comes through something or some relationship and not realizing we already have the deepest sense of joy, the most filling joy, because I've been accepted by God through Christ and I will stand with him forever in his heaven. Stop looking at the temporal. Now, I'm not saying you can't have dreams and goals, but man, I believe there are so many Christians that have allowed the American dream to corrupt the very truth of the gospel. Man, we think more about what God gives us than what God has given us. Man, be, be excited and be joyful that you have hope, a guarantee, a trust that you can put in God. I heard one author say it this way, and I tend to agree. The greatest mark of spirituality in Christ is joy. I like that. The greatest mark of spirituality in Christ is joy. Think about it. The closer we are to Christ, shouldn't we be joyful? Now, I want you to understand something. This joy is not a silly, 
irresponsible type of joy. It's not just a momentary silliness that some, again, denominations push, push down people's throats. This idea of just holy laughter and these silly things. Just nonsense. Not nonsense. People get up and just start laughing and everyone's giggling and this is supposed to be somehow, I, I believe laughter is good, but, but they just will laugh and laugh and laugh and think that's the spirit of God. That's silliness. That's, that's not in here. But what we do see in here is a deep-seated, settled joy. A true settling of joy that nothing in this world circumstantially can move me from the love of God. In closing, and we are out of time, but Psalm 47, I want to read this to us today. And listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 47. It says, Oh, clap your hands. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let us take joy in our divine guarantee that we are assured of our salvation. Would you bow with me as we prepare for our invitation? Just a short time of response this morning to what God is doing. Father, we come before you and we pray that you would seal these things in our hearts and in our minds, that we would not wonder or worry or be filled with doubt, but that we would trust. Lord, even as I say that, I know that everyone in this room, myself included, we've all experienced doubt. We've all wondered if I really meant it, if I really am saved, did it really do what God said it would do? We've all made mistakes and committed sins against you, and then we wonder, if I was a Christian, would I have done that? Or if since I've done this, did I lose it? Lord, we all experience these doubts in the flesh, but I pray that we would stand not in emotion, but stand in the truth of the word of God, that if we have sinned against you, that we would repent of that sin, turn to you, ask for forgiveness, not unto salvation, but that we might have a restoration in our relationship. Father, may you be glorified in all that is said and done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? You want, will you come? Will you thank him for your salvation? Thank him for the assurance, the possession of love. Come and worship him this morning. Come in joy and bend a knee and say, God, thank you for your salvation. Thank you, God, for saving me when I was without. Thank you for doing what only you can do. You want to pray with someone? There's those in the front that would love to pray with you. Would you come and respond?